Good morning, and welcome to the University of Iowa Emergency Medicine podcast. Yes, we are recording this one for posterity. We're going to be talking today about emerging infectious disease. This is a, um, very similar to a talk I gave last year and a little bit of an update. Um, so there's some old stuff, there's some new stuff, some fun, some different. Throughout history, uh, new and emerging infectious disease have played an important role in, in society, in economics, in impact on world health. And a couple of examples include the plague, the Black Death, which seemingly erupted out of nowhere in Europe in the, in the Middle Ages. And what, what happened was you had a huge population very concentrated population, a more urbanized population that was living in um, homes with a lot of, of, of thatch, with a lot of straw, and a perfect environment for, for rats. And you had humans and rats living close together, so all you had to do was introduce a bacterium into that susceptible population and it would bloom. And that happened when a ship arrived from the Crimea um, carrying uh, patients with the disease and, and, and rats with the disease, uh, when the fleas uh, made, the, made the, the leap from the infected rats from the ship onto um, whether it be Naples or, or southern France, there's different opinions on where it started, um, it didn't take long to get established in the community and spread throughout Europe. In the Spanish flu, again, this is the great flu of 1918, which we're going to talk about a little bit more in a minute when we talk about avian flu. And again, you've got a huge population, a huge susceptible population. Uh, this is 1918, this is the end of World War I. You've got a lot of people in, in the trenches of, of France, uh, a lot of people that are, their immune systems are depressed because they, they've been malnourished or they're hypothermic. And in the spring of 1918, you have this outbreak of flu which spreads all over the world. As these, the war ends and the troops come home, Again, you get a recurrence of the disease in the fall of 1918, where you all of a sudden now you get this huge mobility of the carriers of the disease, and the disease quickly spreads all over the world. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Ebola, seemingly came out of nowhere in 19, about 1978, um, from the Ebola River in Zaire. And again, you've got a virus which is out there in the jungles and in the, in the rainforest. Not even sure what the the vector was, or what the or what the host was, but as humans move more closer and closer and further out into um, these communities, you're going to have more interactions with microbes, and you're more likely to get infection that gets established. And of course, HIV um, was it is a similar similar source, something in, in the rainforest, uh, maybe a simian virus, an exchange between monkeys and, and humans and a change in that virus within the humans to become susceptible and be able to transmissible from humans to humans. Once it had the right environment, once it had the right environment in terms of um, sexual transmission and IV transmission and blood transmission, it was able to spread easily. There's no question that microbes evolved and evolved rather quickly. This is a cartoon from Doonesbury where the doctor has diagnosed someone with TB and says, well, uh, so am I going to be okay? He says, well, it depends. Are you a creationist? Well, yeah, why? Well, because I need to know if you want me to treat the, treat the bug with our original antibiotics or with the ones that now are, have been intelligently designed to treat the evolved, adapted, now multidrug-resistant TB. Evolution happens, and happens in a petri dish in a matter of hours. So the major fact, there's major, there's factors in, there's multiple factors in, in disease emergence. Uh, in the Institute of Medicine in 1992, they published a landmark report identifying six major factors of, of disease emergence. They came back in 2003 and updated their report and published 13 factors. Number one on this list, as I was just alluding to, is microbial adaptation and change. Microbes evolve. They change, they adapt, they respond to external pressures. Um, those that are resistant to the antimicrobials are going to be more likely to survive. We select for resistant microbes every time we treat someone with antibiotics. The human susceptibility for infection, again, I was alluding to this, to having that certain population that's there, that's available, that's able to um, be infected with the disease and, and then will carry the disease uh, further. The human susceptibility changes. Technology changes. Immunosuppressive drugs become available with treatment of transplants. 
and that creates a whole new population uh, of, of, of potential patients. Climate and weather and changing ecosystems, as global climate change has occurred, you're seeing um, change in, in disease distributions, especially when related to vector-to-borne diseases. You're seeing malaria in the highlands of uh, Kenya and Papua New Guinea, where it was never seen before. And I came across a really interesting quote I wanted to read. The glaciers of Switzerland, like those of Sierra, are mere wasting remnants of mighty ice floods that once filled the great valleys and poured into the sea. So also are those of Norway, Asia, and South America. Even the grand continuous mantles of ice that still cover Greenland, Spitsbergen, Nova Zembla, Franz Josef Land, parts of Alaska, and the South Polar region are shallowing and shrinking. Every glacier in the world is smaller than it once was. All the world is growing warmer. Now, we all sort of know and assume that um, quote now, but that was written in 1890 by John Muir when he was traveling the Sierra. So there were changes that were obvious to him then, 100 years ago. Human demographics and behavior, with movement of, of humans into cities, uh, urbanization, um, depending on where living is, that's going to, again, again, create an opportunity for interaction. Also, the movement of humans further out into, uh, in, into more marginal lands, into rainforests, you're going to expose them to more vectors and more diseases. For example, yellow fever in Brazil exists in a sylvian cycle, meaning occurs in the forest between sloths and the mosquitoes. If there were no humans there, it wouldn't, it wouldn't show up as a disease. But with the humans living further and further out into the rainforest, they come in contact with that cycle, and you get sporadic outbreaks of human disease in those settlements. War and famine, of course, breaks down uh, public health measures. Um, and without the political will to change things or to in invoke changes or to use um, uh, public health or vaccines to minimize disease, you're going to have more disease. Economic development and land use that I alluded to definitely has an impact. Think about a dam. You build a dam somewhere, certainly you provide water and power. You may provide irrigation for, for uh, crops, but you're creating huge, you know, water reservoir where you're creating a huge, huge place for vectors to, to breed and, and, and develop. So every, every impact you, you make has, has, has some other impact on, on the food chain. Technology and industry. Certainly changes in technology are going to make um, some diseases more um, prevalent or possible or even um, transmittable. For example, in mad cow disease, the desire to minimize the, the price of feeding cattle um, led uh, producers to feed animal parts, including cattle, to cattle. And a direct result of that was allowing this prion cycle to continue and you're having infecting healthy, healthy cattle. Uh, breakdown of public health measures obviously are, have a significant impact on disease. A good example of this is at the end of the, uh, the fall of the Soviet Union in 1992-93, uh, there was a huge outbreak of diphtheria because the vaccines just weren't, vaccines just weren't being given. Every time we give a tetanus shot in the ER, we are prophylaxing against diphtheria. That's why we write TD. You don't write just for tetanus toxoid, you're writing TD. You're actually giving them a diphtheria vaccine as well. Um, diseases are certainly more prevalent among, among the poor. Once you have a disease, a new disease anywhere in the world, it can get anywhere else in the world within 24 hours. And so international travel is a very important, uh, it has a very important impact. And I'll talk about this more when I talk about SARS. Also, international commerce. Is, is how we think that uh, avian flu is being transmitted along, along uh, lines of commerce of poultry. And finally, we have to admit that intent to harm is a possibility now um, with the, the more recent advent of bioterrorism. So these are some of examples of emerging diseases. I'm going to focus today a lot on avian flu because I think there's a lot in the press about it, and it's something that's changing every day. I had to update my talk just two days ago because of new information. Um, I talk about SARS because I think it's a, a classic example of a truly travel-related infection. And uh, uh, a lot about community-acquired MRSA. We talked about this a lot with Dr. Dorn a couple weeks ago. Um, I'm going to present some of, the, some of the data I'm familiar with. And finally, something we have talked about, not only merging new diseases, but there's re-emerging diseases. And we have a perfect example of this this year um, with mumps.
And if you guys didn't get it, there's a handout outside of it with the update on the, on the mumps uh, outbreak in Iowa. Okay, influenza. Let's talk about influenza A. Influenza is classified into subtypes uh, based on the glycoproteins. And these are either hemagglutinins, which are classified as A, or neuramidase, which are classified as N. And there's multiple different types of them. You could have H1 you know, or H2 or H3 or whatever, and you could have N1 or H2, N2, whatever, any number of different numbers. And that combination of H's and N's is what you use to classify the virus. As those proteins, as those glycoproteins, as, it, as single amino acid sequences in those glycoproteins change, you have slight differences in the immunogenicity of that, of that virus. Um, if you have an antibody which is adapted to attack a particular virus, with any given year, there's slight changes in that amino acid sequence on that glycoprotein. It's going to be less uh, immunogenic, it's going to be less susceptible to that antibody. That's antigenic drift, which is what causes things to change um, slightly every year in terms of which the most prevalent type of influenza. Now, all these subtypes, and there's, there's dozens and dozens of them, they've all been, been identified from birds of various type. Only three of the H subtypes, H1, H2, and H3, are stable and established in humans, meaning they're easily transmittable from human to human. They're transmissible, as you know, airborne or, or through droplet. All the other H types, including H5N1, which is, which is when we talk about avian flu, that's what we're referring to, are bird-type flus. That's inherently an avian-type flu. And any avian-type flu in the bird manifests as an enteritis, which is a really convenient way for the virus to spread because the bird simply flies overhead. It does its thing. It poops out its enteritis, and it basically has these... Basically, the flock of birds is basically a giant aerosolizing device for influenza. But there's more to it than that. We're going to get that, get that in a second. Every now and then, you get an avian flu that infects either domestic poultry like chickens or pigs, because pigs are susceptible to both types, human and avian types. You get that little flock of birds that flies over the farm, poops on the pigs. The pigs get sick. The pigs also have a human-type virus because pigs are susceptible to both types. And that virus then mixes in the pig, and you get a completely different type of antigen. And you get a different type of virus, and that's antigenic shift. Antigenic shift is more dramatic, so the change in immunogenicity is, is greater, so the degree of, of um, resistance to our own immune system is, is more. And so those infections are more severe. And less, less people are resistant to them, actually, but most people are susceptible to them. That's what generates pandemics. In 1957 and 1968, you shot antigenic shifts where you had recombinations of viruses within poultry or, or, or pigs. Now, we've actually had avian flu here in this country. Not the avian flu that everyone's referring to in the press, but not H5N1, but other types. In Texas, and New Jersey, and also in British Columbia. And there were a couple of human cases. They all did fine. Actually, it was relatively mild infections. Both all these cases were came from people that were working directly um, with poultry. When we talk about avian flu, we're referring to H5N1. H5N1 is one particular subtype. It was first identified in Hong Kong in 1997. Huge outbreak among the chickens in Hong Kong. And, and, and in that outbreak, there were about 18 human cases, of which everyone was hospitalized, everyone was severe, and, and six, six of them, a third of them died. This was identified pretty early on by investigators from the World Health Organization and the CDC, and it led to a massive culling of all the chickens in Hong Kong. Now, there's, Hong Kong's a big city. There's a lot of chickens in Hong Kong. So they wiped out a lot of chickens, a lot of chickens, and they seemed to eradicate the disease. And so H5N1 went away and didn't show up again for another few years. But in 2003, it showed up again in Southeast Asia, spread to Thailand, spread to Vietnam, and it's sort of kind of smoldered and kind of spread around a lot since then. And then in 2004, uh, late 2004, and then through of last year, it spread from beyond Southeast Asia and eventually got to Africa at that point. It's all over. All the cases, except for a couple, have been linked to close avian contact. Now, I said this, and two days ago, a 
report from Indonesia, Indonesia there's a family in Indonesia where, you've it, where they've had seven cases within one group of extended family members. They haven't identified a direct um, uh, contact with domestic poultry as they did in most other cases. So this is considered, the investigation is continuing, but this is currently considered to be an example of human-to-human -human transmission. That's not the first one. There's been, there was a case in Vietnam as well that was probably human-to-human. It was just between, within one family uh, with three patients. And uh, so this is maybe another example of that, where you have prolonged close contact and you're getting human-to-human -human transmission. Whether this represents that the virus has now made the jump to become easily transmittable, we don't think so, but huh, I'll come back and tell you in a month. So things are changing all the time. It's now gotten an, it, it's currently most active in Indonesia, but there's also cases actively in Egypt, and of course there's been cases in, in Turkey and China as well. Now we need to put this in a little bit of perspective. This graph represents the number of annual deaths from each of these diseases. HIV, TB, malaria, measles, you're talking about, you know, one to three million deaths per year. Influenza, the regular good old influenza A, the thing that we annually get vaccinated for, it's about a million deaths per year worldwide. That's every year. Okay. Total in the entire history of H5N1, the entire history of avian flu, there's been about 122 deaths. That's on this chart. It doesn't show up. So it's not really a big concern in terms of actual number of impact. It's a potential impact. The 1918 flu was probably an avian flu. It's probably, instead of an antigenic shift where you get a recombination, it was probably an avian-type flu, like H5N1, that became adapted to be transmittable between humans. That had a huge impact. There were 50 million deaths from that disease. So compared to measles, malaria, TB, HIV, it dwarfs it, absolutely dwarfs it. That was one event. Is H5N1 going to achieve that? We don't know. What's much more likely is that it'll recombine within some domestic poultry or domestic swine, and you're going to get an antigenic shift, and you're going to get another pandemic, much like 1957, 1968, and probably, hopefully not, like what happened in 1918. So as a result, there's a considerable amount of anxiety about this. So the bird says, hey, you want to see him completely freak? Sneeze. Everybody's reading about it. Everybody's talking about it. And the question I always get is, why does it always happen in Asia? Why is SARS starting in Southeast Asia? Why is flu starting in Southeast Asia? Why does it always come from China or come from Asia? And it's a lot to do with the demographics. First of all, you've got a huge population, absolutely enormous population, enormous population that lives in close contact with their animals, so if you get that recombination, if you get an infected swine, if you get an infected poultry, you're more likely to get the disease. Um, and you've got these wet markets or these live markets where you're spreading um, the infected poultry uh, rather easily. How is, is the bird flu spreading? For a while, it was localized in Southeast Asia. It's now spread beyond that. And there's two main theories. It's being spread in migratory birds, or it's being spread the commercial sale of infected poultry. Someone has a chicken farm, one of the chickens gets sick, a couple of their chickens get sick, the health person, health person comes in, maybe they're notified, maybe they're not, and says, you've got to call your chickens, you've got to kill all your chickens. The entire livelihood for this farmer is completely wiped out. They have a much greater incentive to sell some of those infected chickens rather than kill them all. So that probably happens. There was a massive outbreak among migratory birds in April 2005 in a lake in central China. Nearby that is what we, used, you know, we call the Silk Road, but basically there's, a, there's trade routes to the, to the east from, from China. And poultry is sold and transmitted along this route, potentially live poultry. It is possible that live poultry that were infected in China then made it to Turkey from there. Now this theory then calls for well, the black swans that live in the, I mean, sorry, the swans that live in the Black Sea, 
um, then got infected, and they're migratory, and they spread the virus up and down. And there's great controversy over, over what actually is happening. Um, and some people say, no, it's just the commercial traffic. Some people say, no, it's just the migratory birds. But I think, is, I think the most likely is it's a combination of both. What's happening in Europe is you've got cases of bird flu in, in Germany and in France, about 60 cases each in migratory birds, mostly identified in swans. You've got a lot of cases in, in Romania, again, from, from swans in the Black Sea. And these are migratory birds. So it's showing up in migratory birds. So if migratory birds don't have any impact on the transmission of the disease, then how come the only cases in Europe have been migratory birds? On the other hand, um, then if it's, if it's in infected poultry, you should see some cases in, in, in the poultry farms of, of Europe. And we're only seeing that now. Just in the last month, Denmark and Romania have reported outbreaks within poultry farms. So if it's only migratory birds that are spreading the disease, however, then Spain should have a lot more cases because Spain gets migratory birds from Africa all the time. And Spain, Spain has no cases so far. So it's a combination and we're not quite sure. So how do we control it? Well, the World Health Organization in Lancet a couple years, um, last year came out with this wonderful article describing all these grand and, and brilliant plans for, for reducing disease. We're going to reduce the human exposure to the disease. Okay, we're going to limit people working with poultry. Uh, we're going to intensify capacity for rapid containment. So we're going to know about the disease. We're going to go in there and contain it right away. Um, we're going to strengthen our early warning systems. We're going to rapid, rapidly investigate the cases. And then, of course, building the general capacity for health. Now, this sounds wonderful. Is it really practical? So to, to achieve these, you're talking about a fundamental change in the culture of a lot of places in Asia, in live animal trade, and the nature of animal husbandry in the area. People are, gonna, are, are just not going to stop living with their chickens and pigs. You can't just all of a sudden make that happen. They want to identify cases immediately and quarantine them. Works great for SARS. SARS had an incubation period of about two weeks. And it worked. Influenza has an incubation period of about two to four days. So you have to identify, investigate, and quarantine the case within two to four days. You're lucky if you even hear about it out of China in two to four months, much less two to four days. And that, that gets back to another element, is that to identify cases or to have rapid investigations, you're going to have to report the cases. So that calls upon, and calls upon the trust of those uh, health governments to actually report the number of cases. China's reporting they've had about a dozen cases of, of bird flu. <clears throat> um, you know what, I, I yeah. Um, probably a lot more than that. And so it's, it's um, the other element that they'd have to do for this is they'd have to stockpile antiviral drugs. Works okay for North America. Some places just aren't, don't have the, the funds to afford that. I think the, the more realistic um, solution is, a vac is an effective vaccine. Um, there's currently clinical trials for the H5N1 vaccine, um, and hopefully that'll actually work. But again, if there's an antigenic shift, and if it's not actually H5N1, which eventually becomes the human pandemic, and it's a different type, then I'm not quite sure what we're going to do. So what's, the, what's this mean for ER docs? It means there's a reason why you do the nasal wash. Um, there's a reason why we want to identify cases. You see someone who might have the flu, there's a reason to go ahead and get that swab. It may not make that much difference in that particular patient, especially if you've already made the decisions you're going to treat them with antiviral uh, medications. But if we need to identify cases, we need to maintain surveillance. And you need to do that in the ER by identifying um, identifying the subtypes. You definitely want to test cases if they're ill, and you're going to see this in kids a lot, or if had any avian contact. Now, I used to have on this, I used to have on this slide if they've been to Asia. I don't think that's, I don't think you can say that anymore because you see cases in Africa, the Middle East, and now in Europe. So I would say if you have any person who has a history of avian contact and anyone who's severely ill, you should test for it. Um, treatment. Treatment is with a neuraminidase inhibitor, such as Tamiflu. And there is some reports of, of, of uh, resistance to Relenza, but um, it is considered to be resistant to amandadine. So our good old cheap effective amandadine is probably not effective in the case of H5N1. Any questions about avian flu? Do we know how well Tamiflu works? Do we know how well Tamiflu works? Um, I believe, 
as, as far as we know, Tamiflu is, is effective. Um, it's reducing the mortality in, in hospitalized cases in Southeast Asia. Um, the mortality when this epidemic first started was 50 to 70 percent, and the mortality now is probably 30 to 50 percent. So it, uh, we're not sure. I'm not, I don't think there's enough data to really know for sure, but I think it's probably effective. It's certainly worth trying. Okay, I want to talk briefly about SARS. Um, SARS is a severe acute respiratory syndrome, started in, in southeast China and then spread, spread to Hong Kong. It uh, is a disease that follows a 6 to 12 day incubation period. It's a flu-like illness, and people typically will get treatment about 2-3 days before they, they, they will get have symptoms for about 2-3 days before they get treatment. When they present, 50% of cases will have cough or 30% of cases will have shortness of breath. Or put another way, 50% of patients with severe acute respiratory syndrome will not have any respiratory symptoms. It's a flu-like illness, high fever, feel miserable. Then, a few days later, ARDS develops. People in Hong Kong were in the hospital for 24 days, most of that time in the ICU. Can you imagine tying up your ICUs with patients that are there for like three weeks each? I think it's tough getting to bed now, huh? Um, mortality is about 9% on the average. It's certainly a lot higher in, in patients that are elderly and patients who have co-infection with hepatitis B. Yes? What did people die of with SARS? They die of respiratory failure. Yeah. So if you, it's pneumonia or secondary infections. Long, this is long-term, long-term ventilator, you know, dependent people. So would the mortality be this high in the United States with our advanced ICU care? Probably not. In fact, of all the SARS cases that were in the United States, there were no deaths. And it's just because we got luckier, just because our ICU care is better, probably, probably a little bit of both. But um, if there's a few cases, that's the answer. ICU level care, and, 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 and you can probably pull most people through it. However, if you've got tons of cases, if you're Toronto, if you're Hong Kong, using all your ICU beds are all gone. How many, how many, how many people are the patients I'm going to ask you? Are the patients who present to the hospital most? Um, but there's, there's probably a lot of mild uh, infections that which are go un, unidentified. Um, treatment, as far as you know, is still supportive. Um, Rebovirin was, was tested in some protocols, but it wasn't, a, it wasn't found to be effective. I want to demonstrate something about the, about the infection, and, and this demonstrates again about the, how it's a truly travel-related disease. In February um, of the year that it, that it started, on the ninth floor of the Hotel Metropole, in Hong Kong, there was this guy, this doctor from southern China. And he was visiting Hong Kong, and he got sick. And uh, he was admitted to the hospital about seven days later, died about a week later. Uh, if you were staying on the ninth floor of that hotel on February 15th, you were exposed. SARS is spread by droplet as well as contact. It's um, uh, fomites as well as as well as the, the ventilator system, and that day there were a bunch of people staying in the hotel from Vietnam, from Singapore, and just happened to be from Toronto. And those people then went home, and then took the disease with them. And then about a month later, of course, this disease showed up in all these places, and was traced back to this contact. Now, it was just bad luck for Toronto that that that, that happened to go there. That church group from Toronto, they could have been from anywhere. They could have been from Los Angeles. They could have, from, could have been from Paris. They could have been from Chicago. And what happened to Toronto could have happened to any, any city in the world. Um, it was effectively treated with quarantine, by, with travel alerts and travel advisories. Travel alert says, hey, there's this disease there. You might want to think, not think about going. Travel advisory says, don't go. It's bad there. Don't go unless you have to. So with travel restrictions, um, uh, it seems to have gone away. Is it going to come back? We've had a couple seasons since the first outbreak and very few cases. So it, it may show up uh, from time to time, but I don't think you're going to see as, as a dramatic outbreak as we had with the original um, infection. It is a coronavirus. This coronavirus has been known to vet, veterinary medicine. It causes an enteritis in cats and dogs. Um, in this particular case, the SARS outbreak was traced to the civet cat which is not a cat, it's actually kind of a mongoose-like creature. And it was, uh, it's utilized in 
um, the dragon tiger phoenix dish. And the civet cat um, represents the tiger, and um, the dragon is a snake, and phoenix is uh, usually a pheasant, or it just can be a chicken. And they're sold in the wet markets and the open live markets of southern China. The civet cat has a number of other industrial uses. Uh, its musk uh, glands produce a, um, uh, an element that's used in perfume. And it's also used to make civet coffee. Is everyone familiar with civet coffee? Yeah. So civet coffee, they, um, they feed the civet cat um, coffee beans. And then they collect the coffee beans after the civet cat has, shall we say, passed them. And then they're cleaned and roasted. And apparently, it's a rather aromatic uh, <laughs> coffee, as I've heard. But this is available in, in Indonesia, and you can get it in San Francisco and a few places in Chicago as well. So if you really want to check it out, I could look into where you can find it. Any questions about SARS? Okay. We're going to go on to MRSA. I, I put this picture in here. Um, this is a, a print from 1902 uh, demonstrating a wounded soldier. And the point here is that around the turn of the century, if soldiers were wounded in battle, and they developed a soft tissue infection. That was it. Lop off the arm. There's nothing you can do about it because there were no antibiotics. Sulfa antibiotics came out, came out about 20 years later, penicillin about 40 years later. With the advent of penicillin, very early on, uh, you saw penicillin resistant strains in the healthcare setting. And patients that were hospitalized were chronic patients, I think. They had penicillin resistant staph. But for a while, penicillin staph was, was totally sensitive to penicillin. And then about in the 70s or so, it caught up. And by the time um, I went through med school, it was assumed that all staph aureus is resistant to penicillin. And so we treat it with methicillin or oxacillin or something like that. Well, now, MRSA, we traditionally thought it was a healthcare-associated infection. And until recently, um, now recently, I think that uh, the community is starting to catch up. So first showed up in 1998 in Dallas. Uh, there were five cases in, uh, in uh, North Dakota and Minnesota. And then it really uh, started up in, in 2002, 2003. And there was a huge outbreak of this disease among inmates in uh, Los Angeles prisons. This is when I was at Olive. A um, huge number of cases among hospitalized prisoners. Um, for a while, people with uh, uh, on athletic teams were considered to be um, high risk for it. Now, as we know, it's probably pretty prevalent. Uh, Dr. Doran quoted 30% um, as sort of the average um, nationwide uh, rate. That's 30% of staph aureus, uh, of MRSA, comes from the community. Of the staph aureus isolates, 30% are community associated. And in 2003, uh, Minnesota published a multi center um, epidemiologic study which showed about that same numbers. Um, all of you and San Francisco, and I'm, I'm looking for a few other cases when they, when they, when they publish them, have reported their rates of, in, of soft tissue infections in the ER, what, what percentage are MRSA? 2003, 2004, 57%. How in general, 52%, other places report over 50% of all soft tissue infections are MRSA. Not 50% of MRSA comes from the community, that Dr. Dorman is referring to. Half of every soft tissue infection they see in the ER, half of everyone who comes in with cellulitis, pus, abscess, et cetera, has MRSA. That's a lot. So it is basically assumed, you know, they basically don't even bother to use Keflux anymore. So what do you use to treat it? Um, it really depends on, on your local susceptibilities. It really depends on your local prevalences. We're not quite that bad yet, but we don't have a lot of surveillance. So we should probably be doing those swabs, and we should probably be identifying um, that, uh, what, what is our local rate. Now, as reported in these cases in California, most of the, of this, of the isolates were, were susceptible to Clinda. Almost all of them were susceptible to Bactrim. And the multicenter report from, from Minnesota had a very similar result. And that one, 83% were sensitive to Clinda. So there is about 10 to 20% which are resistant to Clinda, um, despite what Dr. Dorn may have suggested. 
Uh, Bactrim, again, is, is pretty, Tyrethrim sulfo is, 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 uh, treats most cases. What do you use for these cases? And we, we talked a lot about this. Um, I think clindamycin is a fine option. I think clindamycin would be an ideal option, but I think it's rather expensive, so you're not going to be able to use it for patients without, they don't have um, health care insurance. Um, in all of you, they recommend Bactrim plus rifampin. I think that's what they're mostly using at, at County USC as well. Um, and if you, anyone hears any other uh, regimens or hears other people who are using, that'd be great. What are you guys using in general? You guys usually use Bactrim? Anyone, anyone prescribing rifampin? Every now and then, sometimes? Okay. Um, yeah, you don't, you don't have to use... Uh, actually, if you look this up in, in, uh, in the new edition of Rosen, um, they say use Vanco. You don't need to use Vanco. Um, so they really, and this is probably written you know, a couple years ago, so even with the latest textbooks, um, some of the information is not quite, quite, is not quite up to date. Any questions about MRSA? So um, for tree, for, so people are colonized with MRSA. Um, if you randomly test everybody, you're going to get like 20, 24% of the population is going to have MRSA in their nose, for example. And that's where this comes from. People, a lot of people are sort of carriers for it. If you have identified someone who's a case, you can consider trying to eradicate um, them as a, as a source um, and using um, this chlorhexidine washes, or you could pour in it. I think you, would you, usually what you use around the nares. Yeah, and that works. You can't use it on the whole body, so you, you, you treat the nose. Yeah. Is this the, is this the flesh-eating bacteria? Um, not yet. <laughs> um, the, the, quote, flesh-eating bacteria is, is strep, group A strep, and group A strep is still sensitive to most antibiotics. Um, and there have been some recombination, there's some, been some interaction between those two uh, bacteria, and there have been some, some, some occasional uh, cases of resistance group strep A. In the laboratory, you can get MRSA to mix with group A strep and create a resistant strep, which is really bad, so don't do that. Um, <laughs> and so if we ever got to that point, and, you know, yes, Bactrim works great now, but if we lose Bactrim and Clinda, <sighs> okay, then we're back to start amputating again. Woohoo! It would become an ER procedure. See? Every, yeah, exactly. If you wait long enough, it'll come back in style. Okay, let's talk about mumps. Mumps has now reached uh, deep into Iowa and deep into our own residency family. <sighs> Poor Travis. Um, largest egg break in 40 years. Yay! Um, right here in Iowa, uh, we've had over 1,800 cases in county, and I've printed up the update from May 17th. Hmm? In Iowa? 1,800 in, in Iowa. In Iowa, 1,800. So this is our, our and there's more in the... In, in the United States in 40 years. And that traces back to um, basically around the advent of the vaccine. So yeah, this is really significant. Um, now it's spread to other, other states. Um, there was uh, a few um, cases of active mumps were identified on, on plane travel. Most patients with the disease in Iowa have been previously vaccinated, which is a little weird. Maybe it's a bad, maybe it's a bad batch. So, as you know, ground zero for the mumps outbreak is right here, right here at our own institution. Yay! Us in Dubuque were the first cases. Um, who saw a case in December? Okay, so four, five, six, six. Did anyone see a case in November? Maybe one. Did you see one in October? I think, I think me and Dana were. Kind of, so maybe. I think Dana and I were the two people that kind of sat down and said. Yeah. We we uh, I I know that I know that we identified it in um, December, and there were definitely we you know were right, at that point we said oh wait, this is definitely more than one case of mumps, so I don't know if there were cases before then or not, but that seems to be when it, when it started. Um, you'll see you see kind of in the news reports they kind of say um, it started simultaneously in two places in Iowa and we don't really know where and we're not going to say where because we don't want to. Uh, 
uh, embarrass or, or, or distinguish those communities. Well, that's, that's, that's us. It was here. We, were, we did it. I remember when that was happening, mm -hmm. that when the person was sent to... Well, we, you know, I, we did what we thought we should do, which we notified the Public Health Department well, in December and said, and said, hey, there's an outbreak. We notified hospital epidemiology. The the isolates were reported to the state as we did, and then we kind of went on and thought thought nothing else of it. But it really blossomed the next couple months. So here's the um, here's the profile of the outbreak, which we were just talking about. Um, so this traces back to January. So that we know there were multiple cases before this graph started, and this this graph says there were the first three cases were identified in Jan by January seventh. That may be when the isolates from December became positive. But the peak in the outbreak seems to be around early April. And of course, at this point, we were seeing, what, two, three a day or two, three an hour? <laughs> I think Drew Kretsch wrote an So on this chart, um, which is a profile of the outbreak, you've got a drop in the number of cases by late April. Um, these are not valid because there's still there's going to be more added to it as the cases become positive. So have we reached our peak? Is it going to wane from here? The vaccinations are kicking in. I don't know. Um, it's mostly in college-age kids, but that's not much of a surprise to us. We know that. But it spans the full spectrum. Um, so the question is, where did it come from? And, and the one that's really common in the outbreak right now is identified as genotype G, subtype, which happens to, to match the genotype that is causing a huge outbreak in the UK. And this is an ongoing epidemic. <laughs> you know, it's funny you mentioned that. <laughs> um, because, yes, uh, in fact, our good friend, Dr. Alcknellis, um, did his program in London and returned from London in December of last year. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> Burn the witch! Burn! Um, witch! So why, and this is a really good question, and I'm, a, and I'm actually still kind of confused with it myself, but why do you have such a significant outbreak when you've got a vaccinated population? Yeah, I mean, the, the vaccine, over a period of time, your immunity is going to wane. Um, Ten years? Longer? What? Uh, no, most, well, and actually, give that, most people, um, in this outbreak, the vast majority of these people in the outbreak never had the disease and were never around when the disease was, existed as a wild type. So these people um, have had the vaccine. And if you've had one dose, it's about 8% effective. If you've had two doses, it's about 90% effective. So in other words, 10% of people, even with two doses, can still get it. Um, we've known that. But you're still having a, a huge numbers. What happened is what happened in, in, in the UK, and it's probably an example of this here, is you had a, you had, you've had 20, 30 years since the vaccine was, was really, you know, came out and was really common. You've had a huge number of people that have been vaccinated that never saw the wild disease. You've got a huge cohort of young people, college-age people who are, who are, you know, very mobile, very active, very, you know, transmittable, um, who only had one dose because it just wasn't that common, so they didn't get their second dose. And the same thing happened to measles in 1993 in this country. And that's what's going on for the UK with mumps between 2004 and now, is you've got this large group of population that had one dose of vaccine or didn't get vaccinated at all because it just wasn't that common. And it, now it's, 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 it's running through that population. Um, I, don't, I don't know the, the effectiveness of the measles vaccine in it. And that's a, it is a much more serious disease, exactly. Right. Well, you know, I didn't know anything about mumps. I mean, I, I, just what you're talking about. I, I, I know about measles, and I've, I've seen cases of measles. I've studied measles. I know all the bad things that happen with measles. It's a bad disease. Mumps is not supposed to be a bad disease. I just never studied it. I never even learned anything about it. So I was actually really interested when I went back to Mandel and went back to some other sources and read about mumps. I didn't know anything about it. Um, it's spread by droplet and fomite. It is uh, as incubation period of about um, 16 to 18 days. So it's actually kind of a relatively long incubation period. So you, may, you, may, you may develop it, but actually we're exposed you know, almost half a month or more before that. It's, 
it's bilateral when it's in the parotids, but it starts on one side. So if you see someone who comes in and they've got the, the kind of one-sided swelling, it's not like, well, it's not mumps because it's unilateral. Well, it's going to start on one side or the other. So at some point in the disease, almost everybody has a unilateral swelling, and then it becomes bilateral, usually. Sometimes it stays unilateral. According to Mandel, the most common complication is CNS infection. But that's based on doing LPs in everybody who has mumps, um, which is really not necessary. And they identified 50% of patients with mumps will actually have some CSF abnormalities in LP. So it gets in the CNS very common. When you actually get CNS symptoms, is, is up to is 1 to 10% of patients will get a meningitis. And that's probably the best, and the meningitis, or especially the encephalitis, is really probably the only really um, dangerous aspect of mumps. And it's going to happen more often than kids. But the meningitis um, is fairly common, uh, up to 1 in 10 patients. There's been four cases of encephalitis out of 1,500 uh, tested. There have been, it does not report how many cases of meningitis, but probably more than that. So young, young kids, the encephalitis will, will happen more, like, more often than young kids. Kids being not college kids. No, children. children like, like less than five. And those kids have almost all had the... Yeah, they've had, they've had the, the vaccine. The four, 12 and nine, or 18 months. 18 months. Year. Yeah. yeah. Well, or one, probably one does. Probably one does. They probably, it's probably before the five year. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Right. So, exactly. I think there's, I mean, I, I don't, I don't, I don't fully understand it. And I think there's more to it. And I think that there's, you know, maybe, there, maybe there's a change in the virus. Um, but orchitis is, is the most common complication that we're familiar with. It's the most common clinical complication. It happens to 25% of men with the disease, about 5% of women of post-puberty uh, men and women, about 5% of women will get um, uh, ophritis, um, and it's basically swelling or, or, or discomfort in that region. Mumps orchitis does not result in fertility. I didn't know that. I thought, ooh, we got mumps orchitis, that's really bad. Apparently, the infertility from orchitis is actually rare, according to Mandel. We'll see. So you can reassure your male patients that, that present with this that, uh, that it's usually okay. Now, it's, all, it's also usually unilateral. Two-thirds of most orchitis is unilateral. It's on one side. And I've seen a bunch of cases this, this spring of what I thought were epididymitis, um, which now I realize were probably mumps, probably mumps orchitis. It was, just, it was on unilateral, so I didn't think of, of mumps. So mumps... Orchitis is usually unilateral, usually on one side. Tender because it's because it's tender because it's because it's swollen. Yeah. Um, confirmation diagnosis is by serology. You guys are probably familiar with the the form that they have on the computer, which is really a pain in the butt to fill out. But um, isolate suspected cases for nine days. They've isolated people with um, they actually have isolated virus with people with the disease. Um, uh, uh, for nine days after they develop symptoms. And uh, the vaccine is not effective for post-exposure prophylaxis. So you, if you just want to give the vaccine to all our contacts, that works great for like varicella and smallpox and stuff. It does not work for, for mumps. So there's really no treatment at all. Just, well, enjoy your orchitis and take lots of Tylenol and you'll get better. Here's some ice... Um, so, you're probably not going to be infe you're probably not infectious if you don't have symptoms too. Okay, so in general, about emerging infectious disease, what can you do about it? And we've talked a lot about um, identifying the disease, how it's important to identify the subtypes, for example, in influenza A, uh, for MRSA, to do those cultures. There's a reason why we do those wound cultures. It may not benefit the patients that you're seeing right there, but to have any idea of how common uh, or what our antibiotic patterns are, you're going to have to do cultures. Um, obviously, on a global scale, you know, re more research, more training, um, drug development. We need new drugs because the bacteria are becoming and the viruses are becoming clever and, and resisting our, our current armamentarium. Um, obviously, behavioral change in public education is important. Vector control is really important for all the vector-borne diseases, and there's a lot of them out there. Um, finally, what would really 
help would be amelioration of poverty, adequate clean water supply for everyone, of course, that's just not going to happen. So until then, there's other things we can do. So, you guys frightened yet? <laughs>